Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Coming up on this episode, myself and Cathy Sheridan held a storytelling evening earlier this week to mark International Women's Day, where a group of fantastic women joined us and hundreds of you on Zoom and on Facebook Live to tell tales of change and transformation. One of those women was actor Philippa Dunn, who had quite the story to tell. I pulled and I tugged and I tugged and I strained. If I released a huff, I don't remember, but it took effort. And there's only so much elbow grease one can expend when conducting a secret scab pick in front of your classmates during the quiet lull of story time. The resilience and steadfastness of this scab struck me instantly. I'd never come across one that required such efforts to be extracted, but I continued to pull and tug, certain and determined that it had to lift at any second. That was Philippa Dunn there and you'll get the rest of that story and the others later on. But first, we wanted to catch up with human rights worker and lawyer and Irish speaker Nadia Dobrianska, who you'll remember we spoke to last week after she'd managed to leave her home in Kiev with her family to take refuge in a home in rural Ukraine. And since we spoke, Nadia has actually travelled from that house um, for hours and made it safely finally across the border to Poland. And as you know from watching the news, that was not an easy journey by any means. So I had a short chat with her earlier on this morning to find out what had happened. Right now I'm in Poland, in Krakow, and we left last Saturday and eventually ended up in, in Poland uh, in, specifically in Krakow, like 4 a.m. in Ukrainian time on, on t- Tuesday. So it's two days ago. And we're safe and sound now. Uh, but it's been a horrendous trip from a uh, village in Zhytomirsk Oblast, where I was last uh, with my at my aunt's home. And, yeah, I left to get Ukraine with my parents and my cousin's wife and her wee baby of three months old and my brother's cat. So we drove off from north, central north Ukrainian, Ukraine to Western Ukraine and then across the Borlish border. And yeah, here we are. Thank, thank God. What was it that prompted the feeling? Because the last time we spoke, you, you were having trouble ex- telling your parents, particularly your mum, that you would need to go. So how did you manage to do that? To be honest, I'm not quite sure. I got a call from Ireland from a diplomatic professional who said that, well, why don't you just go? Well, we'll be careful. And I was also that very same day. um, I knew that Russians started shelling uh, civilian areas in my region as well. 
and in the occupied regions, well, they're not occupied properly, like, but still in northeast of Ukraine, where there were lots of Russians, they were shelling civilian houses. And uh, I, I just, it, I didn't, didn't need too much evidence to see that this is what's coming for us, too. So for some reason, my parents agreed. They, they, they were so resistant to leaving Ukraine and leaving, even living in Kiev before. So I don't know. It must have been some, some kind of magic. But the other thing is that. I said that we could take my cousin with me, with us, and her baby. So maybe they felt that we they can do something good with with apart from their own evacuation. So yeah, and tell me about that journey then, because I mean I'm imagining it just must have been absolutely so scary and stressful, not knowing what was around each corner, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, first of all, we were warned not to drive in the dark because there are lots of checkpoints on the on the roads because of the martial law and local defense forces were would be checking our IDs. And at some point we were asked to remove our uh, video registrator and give give them our flashcards. We well, thank God it was it was turned off. But you imagine what would military think that I, we could have been recording their positions. That would be atrocious so yeah the road the, the way was was long uh i think from the place where i was to Ternopil, well, there was only like 300 something kilometers but we spent all day in, on the road and we spent the night in the shelter in a school which was very nice there were other families arriving from the rest of ukraine and uh we slept in on, in big classes and it was it was nice. You could see you could see people coming with pets. So our cat in the carrier was having. Well, we didn't have any dogs in our room, but he, we had company. And then the following day, we headed off to the Polish border. And the well, the border trip was horrendous. I think that we spent around thirty hours with uh, in the queue, and we slept. Well, we snoozed throughout the night because the queue was moving. So. At time, my mother was driving because my dad is not yeah hit early, early dementia last year. But he seems to have for some reason got very clear and alert these days. Thank God, because I couldn't imagine him to, having having him come to Poland when he's in bad form because of dementia. This is unbelievable. So my mother was driving and she'd be snoozing on and off, and I'd be waking her up. Mom, we need to go a few meters ahead. But anyway, it was it was really hard. Like there was hardly any food in the, in the shops around us. There would be some uh, gas stations, but sure they'd run out of milk, for example, and you could get, you know, some limited supplies. And there were no toilets, and would just go to had to go to the toilet in the woods around us. And now my boots and my leather uh, trousers trousers that I was wearing are smelling of some shit, and I'm not sure that I can. Uh, can get get rid of the smell. I might have to just bend them when I'm when I get back. Anyway, so yeah, but on the Polish side, it was fine. If you know, like there's there is a war, and sure, Ukraine. There are millions of Ukrainians fleeing every in such short period of time. So there are not enough staff and not enough uh, military on the checkpoints on the Ukrainian side. So it's really congested. But on the Polish side, it's nice. They, they, my mother's, uh, my mother has lost her passport for international travel. So they just let us all in, 
and they gave us that we were we had an opportunity to have some have a meal and go to the bathroom outside the border crossing they gave us free car insurance for a month and which we, we could 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 renew for free as well and we we were hoping to spend the night in Przemysl, which is near about near the border in in the shelter for the refugees but it was so crowded that we decided that well we'll, we'll do this last push to Krakow because we wouldn't have got any rest there and we had a baby and my parents were exhausted after a sleepless night. So we did the biggest thing that I think that nobody should do ever in their lives. But after sleep deprivation, we hit the road and in three hours we were in Krakow, but on the way we had some ter a terrible snowfall that looked like bloody dragons trying to get us <laughs> dragons made of snow. And uh, my mother snoozed well, she blanked out a few times and I caught her. So we avoided any collusion, but well, wow. don't do that. If you're ever in this situation, no. we'll sleep somewhere else. This is advice that I would have, should have given to myself, but we, I, I, I was the one saying we need to get somewhere to rest. And thankfully, yeah, uh, in Poland, I'm, we're staying in the house of my friend's husband. She's my university friend and she's mar married to Paul, so they generously allowed let us in. And yeah, so I got papers for the cat sorted and I'll just go back for him in, in maybe next week or so. There's foster dad looking after him and there's, yeah, we've got home uh, for him too. Yeah, uh, I mean, it just sounds horrendous. And yes, good advice not to do that. But I think desperate times called for desperate measures, um, Nadia. So I, I totally understand why you did that. Was there a sort of relief going over the border? I mean, I'm sure it's massively mixed feelings. And we've seen the last few days, things have just got worse. The maternity hospital being bombed. Images of, you know, whole families lying dead on the street. It's, it's just Horrific. How are you feeling about everything? Are you able to process it now, having been through that incredible journey that you've just undertaken? Well, I do feel relief. I felt it straight. I mean, the, even the night on, in, on the Polish border, I knew that we're safe there because the Russians wouldn't be bombing the border areas. I mean, they would. this would be very dangerous for them attacking a NATO country if they did that. So that was, we were sleeping in the car but I felt that Jesus, I've been, it's the first time I'm feeling safe in a week and a half because I know that there won't be any ballistic missiles landing in my head. For some reason, my cousin is not worried about ballistic missiles and bombs from air jets. I'm not, I am, like, <laughs> to know why. So, yeah, and we're, li we're living near Krakow Airport, like it's 15 kilometers from here. And God, we're all like me and my cousin and my parents are ju literally jumping whenever there is an airplane flying over us. And they're very quick and frequent here. Jesus Christ. It's yeah, it's hard. But I do feel relief and I'm checking on my brother who's in territorial defense. Like, how is he getting on and sending him pictures of his cat and saying we're yeah, we're not saying much to each other. It's more like, how are you doing? Going and I'm I'm on, on, my, on my watch. OK. Are you feeding you? They're feeding you well, of course. Okay, grand, dead on. That's that. <laughs> I mean, there's no point in discussing anything other than that. Like, how are you feeling? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Or how am I feeling? It doesn't matter. As long as we're alive, that's grand. And you're flying to Dublin tomorrow? I am. Yeah, we are. So that's, I mean, that's great news. We'll be so happy to have you here. You'll be staying in Cork, I think. 
I think. Yeah, well, in, in Kanji Cork, uh, I can't discuss this specifics because I'm a bit superstitious these, these days. But yeah, yeah, there's a home waiting for us. What we'll do is we'll um, talk to you then for next week's podcast too and find out how things have been. And we're so grateful that you came on to tell us about your your journey and where you are. And so relieved that you're in safety now. But again, like I say, in your country, things are just still awful. Final thoughts about that before we let you go. I'm lost for words. I can't process it. I just hope. Yeah, I have no hopes, honestly. Like just I've been reading a lot about Jews and how they survived, you know, those who survived uh, the genocide. And what it's like when you know that members of your nation are being exterminated on a daily basis. I have, I don't know, I'm, I'm like pure hatred, pure despair. No more pain. It's just, I feel like I'm getting murdered every time every, I hear other people being murdered. I, I just, I don't know, I hear a lot about some good Russians who are being pushed by Putin to do that. And I know that there are hundreds, there's a hundred thousand Russian soldiers doing this to Ukrainian women, raping them and killing them and exterminating the babies. And there is, I have no excuse for that. And I hear that things are getting worse and hear about threats to use chemical and biological weapons and my people and yeah, no prospects of any relief. Well, Nadia, we are with you and we're, we're just so glad that you're coming to safety, that you're in safety now and that you will be. But I mean, there's no words, like you said, for what your country's enduring and, and your fellow citizens. And uh, we hope to can catch up with you again anyway. And when you're when you're in Ireland and it's great to be ha- going to be having you here. So thanks very much, Nadia Dobrianska. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was Nadia Dobrianska there and we wish her and her family safe travels to Ireland and we're going to catch up with her next week to see how she's getting on but as you can hear from her voice it's such a stressful harrowing time and we're thinking of everyone in Ukraine and all the displaced people obviously affected so badly by this dreadful invasion. You might have noticed we have a brand new logo and we hope you love it as much as we do and to mark this change we held a live storytelling event called The Change to mark International Women's Day, which was last Tuesday, we gathered a great bunch of women, activist Lavinia Kerwick, actor Philippa Dunn, writers Brianna Parkins and Hilary Fannin, to amazing Dublin schoolgirls called Maeve Jevons and Anita Sibby, Pamela Uba, who's the reigning Miss Ireland and recently arrived Ukrainian woman Angelika Sharagina. They all spoke about change and about transformation and about the challenges that change brings and also the opportunities and sometimes the laughs. And as usual, we did laugh and we did cry also. It was that kind of evening. We couldn't fit all the stories in this episode, but in the podcast description, we've included a link to our Facebook Live event so you can hear every single moment of what was an extraordinary evening hosted by myself and by Cathy Sheridan. But for now, here is our edited version of the event, beginning with Brianna Parkins. Take it away, Brianna. So during the pandemic, I switched from my 20s to my 30s, and I'm now in the waiting room classification of no longer a young woman, but not yet an old woman, which means I'm too old to be picked out out of nightclub lines to skip the queue, but I'm too young to guilt school children into giving up their seats on the bus for me. I am too old and traumatised, frankly, to revisit low-cut jeans, but young enough to still attempt euphoria-inspired eyeshadow. Hint, it never looks good. I do not know when this happened, this status slide from young to not young, 
I remember hearing a mother telling her child to mind the lady in her bag in Duns, but I couldn't see anyone she could be talking about when I looked up. And that's because I was the lady. No longer the girl, but the cranky lady with a bag full of grim, dry adult snacks like wheat thins and almonds. I don't know where the line between young lady and not young lady is. My slightly older friend said her moment of reckoning was when she decided not to do drugs that she'd found on the floor of a nightclub. Now, I don't think this test applies to me, and it's not because I'm a Puritan, and it's more because I don't go out to nightclubs that much. And when I do, I have my eye on my good cos coat to make sure no one robs it instead of the ground looking for forgotten bags of drugs. I was told to be afraid of the post-20s stage and when I would become invisible to men. And there are reams of dating advice out there to men to stay away from women in their 30s. Apparently, we don't dress as sexy, we're hardened, and we're high maintenance, apparently. Personally, I think that's a fantastic goal to aspire to be. Expect more from relationships? Sounds great. Has healthy boundaries and high self-esteem? Ideal. Dress less for the approval of men? That's all I have ever dreamed of. Right now, I'm slowly morphing into Diane Keaton. And why? Because she always she's always happy. Every photograph of her is a happy one. And it's because she's wearing flat shoes and breathable fibers. If men who are only attracted to young women are staying away from me, that's a good thing. Thanks to interventionist medicine, I look better at 30 than I did at 20. But I'm not as naive or as willing to put up with bad behavior as I was at that age, which is the real and scary appeal of young women. I might not be as fuckable to some people, but I have become unfuckwithable to most. And I wouldn't trade that for one day of being Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend. It is a proud tradition of older women when out in the pub to protect younger women from being annoyed when they're having a quiet pint. Women did it for me, and now I am the keeper of the flame. I will use my loud Karen voice for good, and boom, are these guys bothering you, Dal? Come sit beside us across the smoking area unchallenged. I get this from my mum, who is terrifying. She uh, she really lent into her middle age, right? And she just has become all powerful in her 60s. She will yell perverts at men who are leering out of cars at young women. She can get banks to reverse charges, and she can even take something back to a shop without a receipt and get a full refund. Who is going to question the authority of a lady with nude brown Revlon lipstick face framing layers, a sturdy handbag, and not one but two Pandora bracelets? The answer is no one. I got to spend some time with my grandmothers over Christmas, and I'm really lucky that I they have actually three grandmothers left. I'm coming down with grannies. And I observe that old ladies get to largely do what they want and get away with it, particularly older Irish ones. They have a special power. I took my granny to high tea at a five-star hotel. She charmed them out of champagne at no cost, robbed the posh bathroom of the extra bits like hand cream, and the TV guide out of the paper in the lobby. It's already in my bag, Lorraine, she said triumphantly to my mum, who suggested the victimless crime. On the train home, she pulled out a tin of sweets from her bag and she insisted that I take one. They were the barley sugar kind that people only aged over 70 are allowed to buy. And in fairness, they're delicious. And I realized that I can't wait to get to the carrying sweets at all times, just in case stage of my life. So 
So actually, my granddad died uh, a short time ago, and this was her first Christmas without him. And uh, being the sensitive uh, granddaughter that I am, I asked her if she'd caught the eye of any rich men staying at the hotel in the hopes of becoming a sugar baby at the age of 33. She paused thoughtfully and she said, you know what, I've had enough of that old island. I've been living with men for 40 years. I'd like to spend some time doing what I want now. So I added that to a list I have in my diary called When I Am an Old Woman. And on it so far is carry sweets, be a bit scary, do what I want and rub the paper. And to be honest, I can't wait. Oh, Brianna, thank you. There's a good reason we started with you, I have to say. Also, can I just say, Diane Keaton in Annie Hall, <laughs> everybody should watch what she's wearing in Annie Hall. Yes. That is so Super true. And I just love that unfuckable with yeah. line. There yeah. was a lot of good lines there, Brianna, but thank you so much. Um, absolutely wonderful. So next we are going to go, and we're so grateful to have everyone here, but we're particularly grateful to have Angelica Sharagina here. I'm going to let you just speak and tell us more about the huge story of change that you have um, been going through. Thank you, everyone, for your kindness. I've been really inspired and shocked by kindness and generosity of Irish people. It's my first time in Ireland. I've never been here. It's quite interesting and uh, how a universe brought me to Dublin and how my life has changed just in a span of 10 days. So... Let me just tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Angelica, and I'm half Afghan, half Ukrainian. And this is a very interesting mix. Both countries turned by war. And um, my family, they've, they've actually overcome this fleeing their own home in 1979 when Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And this is uh, absolutely horrifying to repeat that generational trauma again, when my dad, he left Soviet Union to seek peaceful environment, a peaceful home. Um, And, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine is a country that is actually a founding member of the United Nations. Ukraine is, if you know a little bit more about Ukraine, Ukraine is the heart of Europe. Ukraine is known for its incredible tech ecosystem, tech talent. It's it's a place of truly brave and patriotic people. And no one would ever think that this country would face such disgrace, invasion, and absolute horrifying moments. And uh, I would love to come a little bit uh, to the side of my family and tell you a little bit about what I've learned and the transformation that happened inside our family uh, and how I was really shocked by bravery and incredible spirit of my grandmother, who is 82 years old, and she didn't even blink when the war started. While everyone of my age was panicking, was crying and was really like didn't know what to do where to go and what to expect she was prepared unfortunately or fortunately she was the one that showed us the biggest courage and there where the spirit is unbreakable because she was born during the second world war so um tell you a little bit about how it changed me what i've learned and how it transformed me I'm a political researcher and I studied in the UK and 
After finishing my classes, I came back to Ukraine to fight for democracy, to help promote independent and corrupt free Ukraine. And uh, it's been extremely uh, hurtful and it's been extremely weird to see my own country being in the bloodshed right now. As we speak, my family and my friends, they are hiding in bombing shelters, terrified about everything. And you know, the funny part about this is like, first five days of war, you're in shock. And then day number 10, it's the time where you are getting used to this, where you think this is the new normal, where you feel that uh, hearing bombing uh, sirens is actually okay. So I actually was lucky. I was very lucky because I was in the Middle East when the war happened, but unlucky in other ways because I couldn't help my family. I was at the tech conference and I was, it was the second day of step conference in Dubai when I got the news that the war happened. And my first thing was to call my grandma, to call my mom, my dad, and I just wanted to find out. I, I couldn't believe this was happening. I was, and don't get me wrong, uh, it's not that it is Ukraine. It could have happened anywhere in the world, but the war has no race, color, or creed. But it was absolutely shocking. No one expected this. So when it was 25th of March, 25th of February, sorry, and I got the news that the war happened. I had this organization that I was helping when Taliban took over in August in uh, Afghanistan. It is refugees, amazing people, amazing community and incredible support. And I reached out to them to find out what is the way because I was so, you know, like on the other end, it was the first time in my life where I was the vulnerable one, where I was not offering support, where I was the one that needed support. And it felt terrifying. And the organization told me that you should go to Ireland because this is the country of the kindest people in the world. And I was like, hmm, hello, Ireland then. It's unbelievable. I've never been to Ireland. I, I have friends that are Irish, but they do not live in Dublin. And I was just thinking, okay, if, uh, if uh, this is what it takes, I will go to Ireland. My mind was absolutely not there. I was only thinking about my family, my parents in Ukraine, my friends that I left behind. Due to a madman's invasion, we've lost everything, but we didn't lose our faith. And the biggest example of it was my 82-year-old grandmother. And let me tell you how, how it went. When the sirens go on, like the sirens are barely, you can barely hear them in the city. That's why many older people, they do not even feel the siren going off. So they are at risk that they would not be um, evacuated to the bombing shelter. So uh, when I called my parents and asked them, please, can you evacuate? Please, can you go somewhere safe? Uh, they were actually oppressing this. They were in denial. My dad said that he wouldn't go anywhere. He wouldn't repeat the same thing that he had in his past in when Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And he was in complete denial. He said, this is not happening. And you know, this is so weird when you suddenly become adult trying to actually convince your family to do something reasonable and sane because they do not listen. And I had to go through 
absolutely crazy times, like to convince my friends and family to leave because they were so patriotic. They were so eager to stay in the country. They didn't want to leave. So suddenly I came as a person that was taking care of the whole family, trying to explain that this is not going anywhere. And it was the most profound change that happened in my life because I had to take responsibility to convince them to evacuate. And luckily they did. I know many of you are worried and my grandmother, she's 82 years old right now and she's getting used to um, new life in Germany. They've, uh, she was extremely uh, brave and she didn't have any, any tear in her life during all this period of evacuation. Within three days on the border, within terrible queues, with being disabled. And I actually, my biggest transformation that came out of this event was that, like, actually, it's three things. First, we're not one. We have to think about humanity. Today, it's Ukraine. Yesterday, it was Syria and Afghanistan. Tomorrow, it might be us. It might be you. So when we think about ourselves, not just as ourselves, when we think about humanity in general, that's where we become true, where we become real. And second thing that I've learned out of this was that you have to appreciate every single grasp of air, every single human being that asks you how you are during hard times, and every single sunrise and sunset. And within this gratitude, your life can be really transformed. So this is uh, my story of change. Next up, we're going to go to Philippa Dunn. Give us a wave there, Philippa. Philippa told me a tiny bit of this story earlier. I'm not the better for it. It's good in the end, but the beginning is a little bit disturbing. It involves eight legs. There's eight something. legs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And apologies in advance. <laughs> Um, it was mid-morning. I was six and at school. Our classroom was a boxy prefab in a puddly yard and our young and very pleasant teacher had initiated story time. We all sat quietly at our desks, Law of Atrasna, Cunis, etc., when she began to read. I deemed the story immediately boring, so I decided to find something else to captivate my attention while the tale progressed as a mere hum in the background, a soundtrack, as it were, for what was to happen next. My idle paw went to a scab on my neck, just at my throat line. It had been there maturing for a few days. Surely it should be good to go at this stage. So I decided to go in for a pick. I come from a family of pickers, my mother being an adept zit and blackhead extractor, while my father is drawn to a flaky scab that barely requires any picking at all. So ready is it to be sloughed from its epidermal bed. You see, uh, I didn't lick this habit off a stone. <laughs> I dug the fingernail of my pointy finger under the lip of said scab, or at least tried to. A few attempts informed me that this particular scab was very difficult to affix purchase to. But I persevered and eventually got my thumbnail and the pad of a finger into the sucker and began to pull. I pulled and I tugged and I tugged and I strained. If I released a huff, I don't remember, but it took effort. And there's only so much elbow grease one can expend when conducting a secret scab pick in front of your classmates during the quiet lull of story time. The resilience and steadfastness of this scab struck me instantly. I'd never come across one that required such efforts to be extracted, but I continued to pull and tug, 
certain and determined that it had to lift at any second. And it did. I finally got it. I was chuffed. I held the scab away from me to take an admiring glance at my now defeated opponent. I noticed it was quite small for something so ferocious and also unusually dark. I laid it gently onto the Formica desktop in front of me so I could gaze upon it triumphantly as a cat would an injured mouse. My eyes lingered on it for a moment with pride. And then it changed. It began to move. I watched as it grew eight legs. And then it walked, all casual-like, across my desk before disappearing into the gully that lay between the tabletop and its cheap wooden rim. There were no words. All sounds stopped, save for a wailing ring in my ears, an internal siren alerting me that something was terribly, terribly wrong. My six-year-old mind had no idea as to what I just witnessed. My comprehension of life as I knew it caved in on itself. As I say, there were no words, just thoughts, just confusion, just panic, just terror. I did not know if fantasy had merged with reality or what horrific dimension i just popped up in, but scabs didn't walk. Or did they? I didn't know. My throat constricted, my breath laboured. I glimpsed wildly around the room. Had anyone else seen this? The story still had a captive audience, so I was on my own with this awful knowledge. I did not know what to do. And then the tears came, hot and rolling. My sobs were uncontrollable, unfiltered. Story time came to a crashing halt. The teacher asked me if I was okay. Everyone was looking at me now. I tried to fob her off. I said, yeah, I'm grand, or something to that effect. But when my wailing increased, coupled with some mild hyperventilation, I was invited up to the top of the room for a more personal chat. I was now, combined with my existing angst, completely mortified, bawling in front of the whole class. Not cool. I pressed myself into her side, instinctively desperate for some comfort and protection from what I'd experienced. I could feel every eye on me. She asked me what was wrong. Even though I was only six, and even though I was in shock, I knew completely and entirely that if I divulged the truth in that moment, it wouldn't go well for me. (laughs) I decided for the sake of self-preservation, I would lie and keep my horrific worry to myself. I thought fast. My mammy went on the train to Dublin this morning, I mustered. Okay, replied my teacher. And? And, 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 um, and I miss her very much. My teacher remained kind and sympathetic. But she'll be coming home, won't she? Yes, I answered. This evening? So you'll see her again and everything will be okay? Yes, I confirmed. Frantic for all this to be over. I was sent back to my seat. I sat there, reeling, haunted. I didn't know what ticks were when I was six years old. And sadly, my scab isn't the only thing that changed that day. I made a deal with myself never to voice my ridiculous, crazy and horrifying worries out loud for fear of not being believed or judged to be unhinged. Unfortunately, this stance led to many years of torment and unhappiness for me. But now, thankfully, after years of trial and error, A lot has changed, and I've learned that voicing my worries is essential in order to stop shame and further anxiety from taking hold. At times, I have some very strange worries, and when I I tell them to people, instead of judging me, they laugh with me, because we all worry, and we all need to talk about them. So no matter what you pick out of your neck, don't let worry change your life for the worse. 
Okay, well, Philippa, thank you very much for all the bad dreams we're going to have tonight about <laughs> Gabs walking across school desks. Well, I hope you are enjoying the change so far and the stories of these incredible women. Like I say, we laughed, we cried, we had a wonderful time. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Next up, you're going to hear from a wonderful woman called Pamela Uba, who some of you will know is the reigning Miss Ireland. And actually, she's going off next Thursday to represent Ireland in the 70th Miss World in Puerto Rico. So here she is, Pamela Uba. I'm going to read something that I actually kind of wrote when I was young while also telling my story. It was an email I actually wrote to the Department of Justice at the time, and it was named through the eyes of a 15 year old. So my name is Pamela and I'm from South Africa and I'm currently 15 years of age and I've been living in Ireland for the past seven years now. My mother moved me here with my three younger siblings and in search of a happier, safer environment for us. My father had some problems back home. We lost our business and essentially we were at the verge of homelessness. Not only that, and this is the part that most people probably don't know about me, we were we were robbed as well. My mom was pregnant at the time and she was robbed with a gun and knife to her head and belly. And I witnessed all of this. It was as we were coming home in the elevator there were two guys in the elevator with us. We were in a very bad area and a very bad situation. My neighbor pulled me while they took my mom to the room. Now they took everything from her. It was nannies we had at the time, got their cousins to do this. Took all her jewelries, all her money. Um, and thank God she was pregnant because I don't want to think of what would have happened to her if she wasn't pregnant. She could have been raped. Um, they left with everything she had and she was that scared she she couldn't even walk out the same front door that they came through so we were living a, in a large story apartment at the time um, she went down the fire escape we had those fire escapes and she's pregnant we were kind of on the really high floor so you can imagine the trauma and shaking from the experience that she's just gone through Things weren't going well in the house either. And my mom decided the best thing was to take her kids 
and move to somewhere where the, her kids can feel safe and her children can have a better life and education. I was a really smart kid. I went to private school in South Africa until things got bad and I dropped out of school for a year because of it. So my mom knew we didn't have much time before something bad really happened to us. So she sold everything, got us our tickets. We landed here. We arrived and we were placed in this asylum seeking process. Um, we were moved around center to center until we, we landed in Mayo. So we got, we did get a deportation order initially, but it was quashed. And the reason being is because our lawyer scammed us, took loads of money from us and didn't submit the proper court documents, which upset the judge. I, we didn't know this. My mom didn't know this at the time. It was only until I started leaving cert and started going to lawyers myself that I found out what happened when I went to a new lawyer to present our case. My father did join us at some point in Ireland. Um, and my mom had two more kids, so now that makes us six. But then he left again because of the situation and because of the deportation order, he couldn't handle the pressures of it all. So then my mom was left essentially a single mom with six kids and very young kids. I was the eldest at that time. So I wrote this letter to the Department of Justice and I think it was Enda Kenny who was the head of that um, department at the time. And I said, in my opinion, it would be utterly unfair and unjust for my family to be sent back to nothing. We don't have a home to go to. We don't have enough money. And there's six of us, which my mom would have to put through school. We would essentially end up living in the streets. And that was my reality at the time. I had integrated into the community. I, I'm from Mayo. I, you know, I played football with the team. I integrated so well. I was doing festivals. Like Mayo was my life. I even was doing honours Irish in my leaving cert at the time. <laughs> and I, I put this question to them. I fit in here. This is my own. And it would be like ripping my heart out for the government to move me from here. Imagine what your own children would feel like if they were in my shoes. Would you honestly say that you would have the heart to do to them what you're about to do to me? Um, my brothers and sisters have been here all our lives. This place is familiar to us. It would be like taking our basic human rights away from us, from removing us from our home and where we belong. I may only be a child, but I know for certain that no one has a right to put somebody else's life in danger. I eventually got a lawyer to get my letters to the minister because they didn't actually see it when I was 15. Uh, they saw it around when I was 18 years old. I don't know what happened to it. I was only a kid. I didn't, I don't even know if I was sending this thing to the right office at the time. I gathered that letter and all the references I got at the time. And eventually somebody out there heard me and heard my, my plea. I was a really good student. Um, my mom managed to raise enough money to send me to college, which is something unheard of for a child living in direct provision at the time, going to third level college. When you have no finances, you're not allowed to work and you're not eligible to be recognized as a resident or Irish or access the Susie Grant. So that was a very, very huge feat for her to fill. And I'm so proud that she did that for me because it really changed my life and made me the woman I am today. We got our residency in the end of first year college and thank God for that because you know 
it, it, as much as I loved college, it was also a struggle that first year having to mask the fact that I'm an asylum seeker kid. I don't have money to go out all the time. I barely had enough money to feed myself. I would stretch one chicken breast out over a week because that's all I could afford. Um, I suppose my story is one of resilience and changing to adapt to my environment and overcoming obstacles. And it still kind of affects me till today. And I'm sure you can hear it in my voice as I speak about it. But one thing I left saying in my letter was, if you would give me the opportunity and a chance at life, I wouldn't waste it. And I really didn't because I became a medical scientist. I work in Gawa University Hospital. I finished my master's in Trinity College. And I'm also the current Miss Ireland and the first black woman to do so right now. So I suppose one thing I would say is thanks to that person who looked at my case and saw that potential in the talent that we have here that is untapped in Ireland. And that is my story. And I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Pamela, thank you. Well, Roshin can't speak because she's going to cry. <laughs> uh, Pamela, that was, it's a stunning story and there are so many changes in it that it's, 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 it was really hard to, to, um, to compute what, what you went through and that your brave letter as a 15-year-old and that person out there who finally heard your plea. I'd love to know who it was. Um. I think what happened is, as I said, we got scanned by the lawyer. There was just there's everything that could get in our way got in our way. And not only for me, but also for my mom. And I think the change came from when I actually overtook from my mom going to, to the lawyers. And I got it was a female lawyer. And I don't I don't think that really makes a difference. But maybe in my case, it did, you know, because previously we had a man and I don't know what it was. He just didn't care enough to correctly deal with our case. You know, maybe he had many like me and we were all sitting there in the system and he didn't care enough. And I think that's what happened there. Whereas she, as soon as she saw me and she read my case, she was like, this shouldn't have been happening. You should not have been in the system for 10 years. We need to say thank you to her, definitely. Pamela, thank you to you. I can speak now, sorry. That was just a little moment because I'm just thinking of you as 15 and I I have to just, um, none of this is easy just to say everybody is telling their stories. Some stories are funny and some stories are sad, but it's hard to come up and tell a story. And Pamela, the way you structured that and went back to your 15-year-old self and back to yourself as you are now, like it's masterful. And I, I just want to thank you for putting such care into the way you told that story. And also to say, you know anyone and we've all done it at times about beauty pageants and whether they're important or not I mean this is the woman who's representing Ireland and I can't think of anyone better really no (laughs) thank you so much Uh, I do try to make it my mission to to use my platform and not for the stereotypical ways that people see um, and miss Ireland but in a way that creates purposeful change and talking to people, sharing my story, listening to other people's stories and actively going out there and doing something that helps even one other person. And that is my mission. Well, then we came to our final story of the evening, which was by Hilary Fannin. And many of you will know her from her brilliant columns in the Irish Times every Friday. And Hilary is also an author. Her story, I think we could have called Educating Hilary. 
So here she is, Hilary Fannin, to end the night. Long, long ago, I grew up on a road of semi-detached houses in a Dublin suburb. Each identical house sported a mammy and a daddy and a little plastic virgin on a shelf filled to the brim with holy water. Like everyone else on the road, we had our Cuban Missile Crisis provisions stored in the garage, cans of baked beans and pineapples in syrup, most of which had been eaten before the submarines returned to base. I was the youngest in the family. I had a budgerigar and coloured chalk. And in spring and in summer, my pals and I played long games of hopscotch on the suburban road under a big pink sky. Things weren't exactly hunky-dory. There were financial problems and my father had problems with monogamy. And the washing machine, like my glamorous mother, was temperamental. One by one, my teenage siblings got expelled from their schools whose fees hadn't been paid. By the time they were in their early teens, they'd been excluded from education and were working in hairdressers and department stores and gutting fish on trawlers. Around that time that the bank repossessed the house and the bailiffs carried off the furniture, I too was expelled from school for reasons of unpaid bills and absenteeism. I didn't really mind. I missed my friends, but the days of dragging myself into my woolly tights to go in often late to the convent classroom and peer through a blizzard of dashes and crosses at a blackboard full of multiplication and division were over. I was quietly optimistic as we packed up the borrowed car with our remaining possessions, leaving my school uniform behind in the empty house that sliding down a glacier of despair and confusion over what Pole, August Ija, August, their panting Madra were getting up to on their endless, endless summer holidays was a thing of the past. Because I was 12, I went to a different school instead of to work. At the new school, I ignored the mathematics textbooks whose white pages filled with inky, indecipherable symbols that looked to me like a murder of black crows alighting on a bedsheet, made my head hurt. Instead, I grew up a little. I hennaed my hair and learned to smoke cigarettes and to wring my eyes with coal pencils. I was not at all unhappy. I wrote a few poems and got a boyfriend and hopped on various passing bandwagons. I was well capable in the early 1970s of arguing for reproductive rights, even if I couldn't spell, let alone locate, a fallopian tube. In primary school, I had been told often and with gusto that I was weak and stupid. In secondary school, I was told benignly enough to watch out. Then school was over and without academic qualifications I had some awful jobs in sluice rooms and some wonderful jobs in restaurants and finally, years later, I found my way into theatre as an actor and a writer. My brother, meanwhile, who had been beaten in primary school, branded an idiot and adult in secondary school and had been expelled at the age of 15 for writing a poem about a prostitute, 
was now making his living delivering sailing boats around the world. His work was not unlike mine in theatre insofar as gigs came and went and, as the song goes, you could be riding high in April, shot down in May. When things were tight, he found work painting and decorating. I continued waitressing. Secure and pensional employment was never high on the list of priorities. What was missing, though, what continued to rankle long after the leather strap had been slipped back under the robe or the sting of a nun's rebuke soothed by a mate waiting behind the bike shed with ten grand parade, was a feeling imbibed from school that you weren't ever going to be good enough, that you were never, ever going to succeed. It is an occasionally subtle, orphaned, violent and maybe even irresistible creed for some to punish difference. To single out a child who is late or absent or missing homework or the right sports equipment or fountain pen or daffodils for the May altar. I want to believe that doesn't happen anymore. I don't. I do know that as children caught in the crossfire of a dysfunctional home and an unforgiving school, my siblings and I were branded as stupid and weak. The change that happened in my brother's life happened also in my life within a couple of years. That change was the chance to revisit education in generous, supportive environments. Home from the sea and with two small children to support my brother in his 40s did an access course for a university in Bristol. He followed that with an undergraduate degree and then a master's programme. In university he was diagnosed with dyslexia and having been given the learning supports he'd needed decades before had two novels published. Within months of graduating with a first he was offered a post teaching in that same university. In my mid-fifties having never been to college or had a third level education, I graduated with a master's degree in creative writing from Trinity College and earlier this year I was appointed writer fellow there. Like my brother, I now teach creative writing to undergraduate and master's students. Being an educator for however long or short a time is a uniquely privileged position. I tell the students I teach that life is long, that experience, no matter how random or seemingly unquantifiable, counts. I tell them that every word they have to offer matters, that there is no wrong way to write, that their work, the product of their unique imaginations, is brilliant. I tell them that they are in possession of strong and precious voices. It is in our gift as educators, as parents, as friends, as adults, especially in these frightening, unpredictable times, to support, to encourage and to cherish young minds. For me, change came through learning that who I was was good enough. And it really doesn't get much better than that. A beautiful story by Hillary, which doesn't surprise me. But every, but And I know a lot about Hillary's life, but every time she talks about <laughs> it, I'm surprised again. I mean, that is, I mean, the word inspirational is used far too much in my view. But I mean, 
that I think that's what unites a lot of the, the, the women here this evening. You genuinely have been inspirational in, in, in various ways and um, in how you structured your stories, as Roisin said, but in the actual stories themselves and the fact that you feel able to talk about them and articulate them. Um, yeah. And we're so grateful to you yeah. all. It, 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 synchronicity is, is too clinical a word almost, but you really did all seem to meld in some extraordinary way. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you so much to everyone who took part and for all of you for being there. And remember, if you want to hear and see the whole thing, go to our Facebook page and go to that Facebook Live link. Um, I'd really recommend it. We had an extraordinary time. And that's all we have time for now. Thanks to Nadia Dobrianska as well from earlier on and that's it from me the podcast is produced by me Roisin Ingle by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quinn's Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.